Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. For several years, the independence movement in Catalonia has been gaining momentum, with Spain's wealthy and much-envied northeast region finally set to vote on secession from Spain this Sunday. But the Spanish government deems the vote illegal and is doing everything in its power to stop it from taking place. So will Sunday's referendum go ahead? And if it does, will the results stand? Guy Hechka will give us his take from Barcelona. Later on, Berlin correspondent Derek Scali will look back at the weekend's general election, with Angela Merkel's likely return for a fourth term, overshadowed by the remarkable success of the far-right AFD party. Since then, however, the AFD has suffered a high-profile split at the top of the party. What do the weekend's results say about Germany now? But first, a political crisis long in the making comes to a head in Spain this Sunday, as authorities in Catalonia press ahead with a vote on independence. In recent days and weeks, the situation has become fraught. The Spanish government, which deems the vote illegal, has arrested regional officials, seized election materials and ordered the regional police force to to report directly to Madrid. In response, there have been protests by Catalans angry at what they perceive as anti-democratic heavy-handedness from the Spanish government. Guy Hedgeco joins me from Barcelona. Guy, the situation seems to be a terrible mess there. First of all, and most importantly, will there be a vote this Sunday or has the government done enough to scupper it? Well, there's still the question everyone's asking here and there still is not a clear answer. Um, I think those who are organising the vote, the Catalan government's, continues to insist that it will go ahead. Um, It it has continued to push ahead with logistical plans um, to push ahead with the vote. For example, you know, uh, posting websites that are supposed to help um, voters, which are then in many cases subsequently taken down by the government or by the police. Um, And then by contrast, the Spanish government continues to insist that the vote will not take place, that it believes it has um, effectively dismantled the, the, the structures um, that were in place to, to hold the vote. Now, I, I think we will certainly see a massive mobilization in the streets of Barcelona and elsewhere on Sunday. Um, there will be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the street um, demonstrating, not even necessarily in favor of independence, but most probably against the Spanish state or against uh, Spanish state intervention and the kind of intervention that we've seen in in recent days. Um, Whether or not they are actually able to vote is another question. I'm guessing that there may be some voting that goes on, but it would be probably difficult to see um, that vote as a serious, credible referendum. It it seems like a bit of a toxic mix uh, heading into the weekend. Is is there any sense that that we might see see violence or or, or some kind of... Um, outburst? Well, well, I mean, tensions yeah, have been heightened very much, and in particular since September the 20th, um, that day when the uh, the Civil Guard entered the uh, Catalan government's uh, premises in Barcelona and arrested those 14 officials. That was kind of seen as the straw that broke the, the camel's back in the sense of um, the state intervention um, and government intervention in uh, in Catalan affairs. And so that drew a very strong response from um, Catalans who wanted to vote. Um, And they started pouring out into the streets and demonstrating. We've seen this kind of wave of demonstrations ever since. Now, almost without exception, those demonstrations have been peaceful. And the Catalan independence movement does always emphasize that it's a peaceful movement. And even when they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people out in the street, um, you very rarely see any kinds of violent incidents or problems in in that sense. And so far, that's continued to be uh, the case. 
But I think people are wondering if um, things are getting so tense between the Spanish state and Catalonia that um, it wouldn't take very much um, for that, um, that peaceful situation to, to turn um, and for there to be violence. And certainly um, that tension is raised by these civil guards and police who are arriving in Catalonia currently from other parts of Spain ahead of the vote. So there's very much that sensation here in Barcelona and Catalonia in general of the Spanish state is sort of preparing for the big day and we don't quite know what's going to happen. So people are, are extremely nervous about that, I think. What is the situation with the, with the local police, the, the Mossos police force? I mean, will, will they be taking their orders from Madrid or, or um, there seems to be some mixed, mixed reports on that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they um, normally take their orders from the Generalitat, the, the, the Catalan regional government. Um, and they, uh, along with the Basque uh, region, they're one of the only regions to have their own police force. Um, and it has this, this degree of autonomy from the Spanish state. Um, but due to concerns about how they might behave on the day of the referendum, on the days leading up to the referendum, the, um, the, the, the Spanish government has said it wants to put them, or it is putting them under control um, of the civil guard, um, under kind of the, the, the broader umbrella of the, the national security forces. Um, and we, the response to that is still not clear, really. Um, Joseph Luis Trapero, who's the head of the, the, the regional police, the Mossos, was called to a meeting yesterday to discuss this. He didn't go. Instead, he sent a document explaining his position. And it seems as if he has expressed concerns about that um, idea of being put under control of the civil guard. Um, and it's, it's clearly a difficult situation for him and for the, the Catalan police to be in. And, and I think many people feel that they could be key on October the 1st because the way that they behave, if they um, obey the orders of the central government or of the uh, the regional government, that could be key in terms of whether or not this vote takes place um, as the the Catalan government would like it to. They could be kind of perhaps one of the main factors there as to whether it actually takes place. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned obviously this crackdown by, by Spanish authorities and, and perhaps how it might have galvanised the uh, pro-independent side to a degree. Um, is there a sense of that, that people who were maybe uh, ambivalent about the vote or, or, or even uh, anti-independence are, are, are coming out and, and um, protesting about it? Or, and has it sort of mobilised that, that side? Well, I mean, I have to admit, I haven't met anyone yet who is in that situation who would say that they weren't in favour of independence uh, beforehand and that the, the events of recent days or weeks have turned them um, in favour of independence. However, um, I mean, many commentators and analysts are saying that it's pretty inevitable that there will be a number of Catalans who um, are so outraged by what has happened um, over the last few days, in, in their view, a kind of intervention in their, their regional affairs, that um, they may turn not necessarily um, from being on the fence on the issue of independence or against independence and then changing to um, a pro-secessionist point of view, but um, perhaps it would turn them against the Spanish state. Um, so there's a kind of subtle difference there. But um, you have to bear in mind that the, the Catalan regional institutions are seen as um, 
being very hard won by the Catalan people. You know, during the, the, the Franco dictatorship, um, Catalonia essentially didn't have any of these, these autonomous powers. Its, its regional institutions didn't exist in the sense of the Catalan regional government and the regional parliament and so on. So when they were kind of reinstated after the end of the dictatorship, it was seen as you know, a big victory for Catalans. And I think Catalans of all stripes prize their institutions very highly. So the regional government, the parliament, the police, and so on. Um, and not necessarily just the nationalists, not necessarily just pro-independence Catalans, but Catalans across the board prize those institutions very highly. And I think the idea of members of the civil guard, uh, the Spanish state coming and raiding the Catalan regional government on September the 20th. That idea, it's, it's almost breaking a taboo, I think, for many Catalans. So that, I think, may have turned people not so much in favor of independence, but certainly against uh, the Spanish state, possibly, or against the strategy of the Spanish government with this crisis. Sure. Can, can you talk us through, uh, you know, just some, I mean, briefly enough, I suppose, because it's a complicated uh, subject, of course, but um, some of the main issues and, and, and grievances um, behind the independence movement and, and sort of how it got to this point. Well, I mean, Catalan nationalists have a number of grievances. Um, and, you know, perhaps the most obvious one is the economic one. They say that they have the biggest economy of Spain, 17 regions. They have the biggest economy. It, it provides 20% of Spanish GDP. Um, and it puts a lot more money into the Spanish coffers in Madrid than it gets out in terms of um, the uh, investment by the state into um, infrastructure and railways and so on in Catalonia. So it says there's, there's a shortfall there between what it sends to Madrid in terms of tax revenue and what it gets back in investment. And that's been a long-standing um, complaint um, in Catalonia. Um, I mean, the, the, the figures they put on it vary um, pretty, yeah, enormously. It depends on who you talk to. Most people would agree that there is a shortfall there, but certainly the nationalists say it's bigger than uh, than unionists would say. Um, but there are other grievances as well that um, relate, others related more to issues of culture and particularly language um, and many Catalans feel that the, the, um, the Spanish state and the Spanish government, particularly this Spanish government of the Conservative Popular Party, um, has been trying to um, sort of re-centralize certain areas of, um, of Catalan life and has been trying to um, stop Catalonia from pushing ahead with um, you know, ed education in Catalan for, for Catalan children. Um, and... There are other political issues as well, um, which focus around um, areas of devolution to the Catalan region, which many Catalans say have not been fulfilled, but essentially promises broken by the Spanish government. Now, I should point out all of this, uh, all of these complaints, the, the, the government of Madrid says that they're, they're wildly exaggerated. Um, but these are certainly um, among the, the issues that they have here in Catalonia, they're, they're economic, they're cultural, and they're political. It, it seems scarcely believable that it's got to this point, really. Is there anything that the, the Spanish government could have done differently um, to, to placate the, the Catalans uh, up to this point? Well, I think the, the feeling is that this kind of all kicked off in a way um, almost exactly five years ago, in 2012, in September, um, the then regional premier or president, Artur Mas, went to Madrid and asked Mariano Rajoy, the prime minister, if he would negotiate 
devolving more financial powers to Catalonia so that they could tackle specifically that issue of tax collection, for example, and how much tax Catalan, Catalonia um, sent back to, to Madrid and so on. At the time, Spain was in a deep economic crisis, um, and Rajoy used that as a reason to say, no, I won't, I won't discuss that at all. And that was when um, essentially the, the whole independence push um, kicked off, um, and it kind of entered the the political mainstream. Um, and since then, there's been, in a way, very little um, willingness to to engage in dialogue on both sides. I think, but I think if you if you look back, that might be the moment um, when Rajoy perhaps could have been more open to negotiating, even though he would argue his hands were tied financially somewhat. But you know, we, we've had five years since then for for some kind of. Um, negotiation or dialogue and it hasn't happened um and rajoy seems to be responding to certain pressures in madrid there are pressures from the right wing of his own popular party there are pressures from the right wing media press which is very powerful um and there are pressures from his own voters as well you know uh, uh, say a, a 50 year old voter in andalusia is not going to be at all sympathetic to the idea of Catalans uh, staging a referendum in most cases. And Rajoy knows that. Um, and I think he feels if he did start negotiating with the Catalan, um, the Catalan government about holding a referendum, he would risk losing a lot of votes in the rest of Spain. Yeah, one of, one of the pe- peculiarities of the situation uh, seems to be that although a majority in Catalonia have, have wanted the right to vote, um, the independent support never appears to have risen above 50% and, and, and is maybe more closer to 40% uh, now. I, is there a sense that the nationalists, um, you know, did did they expect perhaps a higher, you know, that, that they would turn more people, if you like, by now? Because this obviously has been coming from a long way back. Well, I, I, I think they, they saw this as kind of um, a perfect storm, perhaps, if you like. The, the, the last few years were a unique opportunity for Catalan nationalists, for those who wanted independence. To, to grasp for the moment and and push for independence because um, partly because of the economic crisis um, across Spain, which had left many Spaniards and obviously Catalans disenchanted, and also because of um, the Rajoy government, who was seen by many Catalans as anti-Catalan, essentially. Um, and so those two factors, the economic crisis and the Rajoy government's and Rajoy um party, his, his popular party's very rigid approach, even when in opposition before he was in government to the Catalan issue. Those two um, factors have been very potent in opening this window of um, of opportunity for the Catalan independence movement, I think. And I think there is a sense that maybe that window has been closing for the last year or two, that it was perhaps you know wide ajar a couple of years back, close to 50%. And it's been closing a little bit ever since then. And so perhaps that might help explain why the, the independence movement is in a little bit of a rush for this to happen, because perhaps they, they sense that, you know, in, in three or four years, perhaps there won't be even 45 percent uh, support for independence in the polls. Uh, maybe it'll be low, lower than that. Now, they don't tend to admit that openly, um, but I think certainly that um, would be a concern for them. But it is true, as you mentioned, that the vast majority of Catalans do want to um, hold or be involved in some kind of negotiated referendum. Not not the kind we're seeing this Sunday. That doesn't have three-quarters support. Certainly, it's, the support for that is much lower. But so around three-quarters would like to see a negotiated referendum with Madrid, with the blessing of the, of the Spanish government, a kind of Scotland-style referendum, certainly. 
Finally, Guy, uh, you've been out speaking to people there, um, uh, I know yesterday, a few Irish people, residents as well. Um, what, what are people saying uh, now this week that who you've met? Well, there's just a sense of uncertainty, really, um, among um, locals and among, you know, the, the, the Irish I spoke to as well. No, no one seems to know exactly what, what is going on. Um, you know, there's a feeling that this is a historic moment for for Catalonia um, in a good way or a bad way, depending on which side of the fence you're on. But certainly, I think, you know, the general agreement is that this is the biggest um, political crisis that Catalonia has seen, or that Spain has seen um, in its democratic era since the return to democracy. Um, and most people seem to feel that um, whether, whatever, I think whatever side they're on, that perhaps the Spanish government could have done more to defuse it beforehand. And that now it's uh, paying the price for not engaging in this politically. Um, and that it's just, becoming more and more difficult for Rajoy to handle this. Um, I think a lot of people feel that perhaps if the um, the people involved in all this, the people leading it, so Rajoy certainly, and perhaps Carlos Puigdemont, the, the Catalan premier, if they were replaced, then things perhaps might be easier in terms of starting a new slate. Um, but I mean, the Irish I spoke to kind of have, have um, given a mixed response. I mean, some of them um, are very concerned about their businesses in Barcelona, for example, um, about the possibility of, you know, if, if there is independence at some point, but it's not recognized by the EU, not recognized by the Spanish government, they worry about the future of their um, their business, their bar or whatever it is. Um, so th there's a lot of anxiety. And obviously, people who want independence are excited about what is coming up on Sunday. But even they, I think... Um, see it with a, an element of uh, of anxiety and nervousness as well. Guy Hedgeco in Barcelona, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Dave. To Germany and a success of sorts for Chancellor Angela Merkel in Sunday's general election, with a likely fourth term on the way. But in fact, the story of the election turned out to be less about what she won and more about what others gained. Merkel's CDU party lost 8.6% of the vote, with its grand coalition partner, the Social Democrats, hemorrhaging 5.2%. The big winners, the populist anti-immigrant alternative for Deutschland, founded in 2013, who storm into the Bundestag as the third largest party on 12.6%, or some 94 seats. On Monday, however, the AFD's co-leader, Frauke Petri, dropped a bombshell when she quit seemingly in protest at the party's extremist rhetoric. Derek Scali joins us from Berlin. Derek, a strange turn of events for the AFD after the weekend's success. The parliamentary party has been meeting today. Has it been lively? Yes, it's already taken place, but they're going to meet again tomorrow. And this is the first ever meeting of a far-right populist party in the German Bundestag since the Second World War. So obviously all eyes were on that today. In the end, it turned out to be less exciting than some journalists were hoping for. Um, Frauke Petri, who is the co, um, was the co-leader of the party, has announced she's going to be resigning the party and the parliamentary party. She'll sit in the Bundestag as, as an independent. And uh, so of the 94 um, MPs in the party, uh, 93 said that they're planning on staying with the AFD. So for now, at least, uh, the, the coup she was hoping to, or the division she was hoping to bring into the party doesn't seem to have happened. Frauke Petri um, took over the party in 2015 when she saw that its original mandate, the, uh, the Euro crisis, that was starting to fade from people's view, and she was worried the party as a one-issue party would disappear. So she radicalized the party into 
2015 and took it on a, an anti-immigrant uh, direction. Uh, and it's sort of ironic now that the woman who radicalised the party decided the day after the election, which was fought on a radical anti-immigration platform, she then announced that she felt this was problematic and this was putting off conservative voters and she, she said she couldn't join the party. So um, sort of, uh, she seems to have been uh, devoured by the monster she created and has walked out of the party. But the rest of the party is sticking with uh, the mainstream, as it were. Now, Petri was uh, elected in Saxony, where the AFD uh, polled particularly strongly. Uh, you've looked at the voting patterns in general. What do, what do they say about the FD, AFD vote in this election? Well, they show what everyone has already known. The AFD is a party of two halves. Um, it started off as the Eurocrisis party, as I said, in 2013. And in sort of western Germany, um, there's sort of a conservative liberal wing of the party who are concerned about the legal implications of Germany getting involved in bailouts and propping up countries like Greece, whether or not the, the euro is a good idea for Germany and for Europe in general. And it actually wants Germany to leave the euro and leave the rest of them uh, in there. Um, uh, and now there's another part of the country, uh, Eastern Germany, and they are more sort of a nationalist, uh, strident, anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant, anti-Islam, anti-everything tone. Uh, and they seem to have the upper hand in the party at the moment. Uh, so what we saw is down in southwestern Germany, let's call it the Tweedy Conservative Liberal, they would consider themselves disappointed Merkel supporters. Uh, it got around you know, 10 to 15 percent, but um, and southern Germany was stronger than the national average. But over in eastern in Germany, the, the, the strident anti-foreign uh, or anti-Islam logic or rhetoric, that pulled in uh, up to 27% in Saxony, in the federal state of Saxony. That made it the, uh, the strongest party there. But in all other eastern federal states, it polled number two. So number three nationally, uh, number two, or even number one in eastern Germany. So uh, it's, it's very much, a, some people would say, sort of an openly xenophobic racist party in East, East Germany. I mean, it, it may have some broad, broader appeal, but what about its new MPs? Are, are, they, are they more conservative or far right, or, or is it a broad mix? Well, it's a broad mix because the party has really tried, and this is the key to its success, it's become a catch-all party. It pulled in the largest number of votes, over a million, from the non-voters, so it reactivated voters who haven't been to the polls in years. It also pulled, its second largest group was from the, from the Christian Democrats, from Angela Merkel's party, who uh, either were annoyed at how she opened, uh, she or she didn't close Germany's borders to asylum seekers in 2015 and 16 and brought in a million people. So people were annoyed with that or people annoyed with her euro crisis, or just basically people feeling that she's far too centrist for them. They want old-fashioned conservative or liberal politics. So one million uh, CDU voters into the pot. But she pulled, the party pulled in people from the Social Democrats and also from the hard-left Linke, uh, where they had a sort of a, 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 a I think you call it socialist, not socialist nationalism. They had a socialist element to their program and a nationalist element to their program. So talking about boosting pensions, boosting uh, welfare, and reducing using payments to asylum seekers to pay for it. So they've got something for everybody and their voters all over Germany from all ends of the spectrum responded to that. How does Angela Merkel go about wooing some of those, those voters uh, who left her? Um, and, and will we see that reflected in, in, in some of the policies to come? 
Well, there's two things. There's the policy and then there's the approach uh, to the party. On the policy wing, I think she's quite optimistic because um, 60% of people who voted for the AFD said that they voted uh, not because they were convinced by the AFD, but because they were disappointed by what else was on offer. So almost two-thirds of the party, she thinks, uh, could be won back with sensible politics. The question is, what does she mean by that? Because she insists that what she did in 2015 and 16 uh, with its open-door policy, that that was the sensible thing to do. It'll be interesting if she sticks to that line, if there are further Islamist attacks by people who came in claiming to be asylum seekers. So that's on the policy side. On the other side is the approach. Um, many people in Germany are outraged and emotional and uh, very upset, as you can imagine, as a far-right populist party moving into the German parliament again. So there's a lot of hot heads around. The question is whether or not hot heads are the, the problem or the solution. Many people have suggested that actually um, ostracizing the AFD makes them more glamorous, makes them appear martyrs. But on the other hand, you don't want to treat them like a, a completely normal party because they have called into question some of the basic democratic principles of Germany, including yesterday, um, whether or not Germany's uh, support for Israel is really as absolute as it claims it to be. This is one of the pillars of post-war Germany. So the question is, how do you tread a middle line between not completely treating like a normal party, but not turning them into political martyrs either? So if Angela Merkel can win back the protest voters, but also find a way of dealing with the AFD that lets them perhaps um, show them for what they are, well, then there's maybe hope of winning back uh, some of the voters she lost to them. Looking more broadly then at at her, at Merkel's coalition options uh, ahead, uh, the Greens and the Liberal FDP are in the frame. Uh, They're not great options for her, are they? No, I mean, this isn't what she wanted at all. I mean, she she's a sort of, she likes to have this sort of presidential style of of leadership. And, and the last government she was in with the Social Democrats, it had a, a four-fifths majority in Parliament. So she never really had to get involved with the dirty business of, you know, making sure her majority was secure in Parliament. She could just sort of swan in, give presidential speeches and swan out again. If she has two smaller parties and a smaller majority and a more, uh, a more a robust opposition, Position, she will have to get back involved in the business of uh, parliamentary democracy in Germany. And the two parties she will probably be working with are actually ideologically opposed to each other. One is a pro-business liberal party, the Free Democrats, and the other party is sort of a centre-left ecological party, the Greens. And when you look at their programmes on everything from Europe to, you know, e-mobility to uh, reform of the Eurozone, and they're not really on the same page. So uh, either they will be scratching each other's eyes out in government uh, and she will have to be the referee or she can allow them, she can find a way of uh, reconciling their different political constituencies uh, and running it. But either way, uh, if this is her last term, it's certainly going to be a lively one for her and far livelier uh, because of the opposition than she's used to. Derek Scallion Berlin, thanks for joining us. Thanks to today's contributors, Guy Hedgeco and Derek Scally. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. I'm David McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.